Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. In this episode, I have two guests joining me to talk about OT fellowships. Whether you've never heard of an OT fellowship or are in the process of applying to be a fellow, this episode is for you. Marissa and Samantha join me as two fellows who completed different fellowship programs in different practice areas, and I reflect on my own fellowship experience in adult neurologic rehabilitation. Before we jump into this value-packed interview, I'll give you the 30-second lowdown on OT fellowships. They're an approach to specialty training that maximizes exposure to evidence-based research and clinical practice, and it produces unique opportunities for OTs to improve their clinical skills in a specific area of OT. So in addition to what we share in the episode, please do check out the show notes for more information about fellowships and how you might go about applying. One last thing before we start, I want to send my best wishes to both Marissa, who got married this week, and Samantha, who got married last week. We recorded this episode earlier in the summer, and between the time we recorded and published, all three of us are now married women. There is so much to celebrate, and I wish the absolute best to them in their marriages. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, so welcome to the show. And before we get started, I'd love to introduce my two guests, and actually I'll have them introduce themselves. So uh, Marissa, can you go ahead and, and introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, my name's Marissa. I'm a pediatric OT. I'm originally from Texas, but I'm currently living in Cincinnati, and I'm completing the pediatric fellowship through Cincinnati Children's. Great. And how about you, Samantha? Um, I'm Samantha. I'm an acute care OT, and I did the acute and critical care fellowship at Duke University Hospital. Great. And for those people who are maybe just listening into OT Uncorked for the first time, my name's Miranda Rennie. I'm the host of OT Uncorked, and I currently live in Los Angeles, but I completed a neurology and neurorehabilitation fellowship at The Ohio State University. So we are all talking today about fellowships, and I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do, of course, I want to know what everybody's drinking while we talk today. Yeah, so I have, local to Cincinnati, we have a brewery called Rheingeist, and they make um, a bubbly rosé. So that is what I'm drinking. I love Rheingeist. When I lived in Ohio, (laughs) I would always get Rheingeist. They have really good stuff. Yeah, Yeah, so good. Samantha, how about you? Um, I'm actually drinking muscadine wine, which is funny because I don't like sweet wines, and this is the only one that I like that is sweet. (laughs) Very good. Okay, so at the end of the show, we'll talk more about what we were drinking. I'm drinking The Candidate, which is a Cabernet Sauvignon, um, and we will at the end kind of give our reviews. So we just kind of introduced what fellowships we did, and I think we should maybe start by just giving a brief little overview. In the introduction to the episode, I gave a little bit of a of, a, of an introduction to what an AOTA fellowship is, but the kind of big picture is that it's an opportunity for OTs to gain post-professional training from sites that are really well-equipped to develop advanced practitioners. And, and the kind of goal from my perspective and and kind of what I saw to be true was that in one year for me of practice, I felt like I gained the skills that I would have, it would have taken me years to to build in a traditional job. Was that kind of the same experience for you too? Yeah, definitely. I feel like because it's, at least at Cincinnati Children's, it was structured for newer graduates. 
So it was really heavy on mentorship. There was really only one day a week that I was completely by myself managing a caseload. But the rest of the days, I was pretty much always uh, one-on-one with other occupational therapists who are kind of leaders in the field and really specialized in what they're doing. Um, Yeah, there was a lot of mentorship. We have had quite a few new grads, but um, ours, given that it's like ICU-based care, really caters or prefers people who have some type of experience just because there's so much orientation that has to go into like the safety perspective of line management and those kinds of things. Um, But I had only been working for a year, so it's definitely possible to be a new grad. The fellow that we have right now is a new grad. Um, And so the mentors are really good about catering the amount of mentorship and supervision needed per person. So I think that actually brings up a good point. So Samantha, you had one year of practice before you went into the fellowship. And then Marissa, you came in as a new grad. So I did, just for timing purposes, I did work a travel pediatric OT job before starting the fellowship. So I graduated in December of 2018. And then I didn't interview for the children's fellowship until March. And then I didn't know whether or not I had been accepted until April. So for me personally, I couldn't have worked five, or gone five months without working. So <laughs> I already knew that I wanted to apply to this fellowship before I started both of my level two field works. So I had already been in contact and looked into travel therapy as something that could kind of tie me over in those couple months. So I did have a couple months of experience, but again, it wasn't Uh, it sounds like as intensive as Mm -hmm. a full-time year-long job. Sure, that makes sense. And and I think Samantha brought up a good point that for a critical care and acute care setting, uh, there's so, I did a a level two field work in critical care, and there are so many unique safety kind of features of that environment that you need to know. Um, It's not something you can just kind of develop over time. There's certain things you need to know for the safety of your patients. And so I could imagine we're developing those skills while also just trying to figure out how to really be an OT and kind of get comfortable in that role would be a lot at once. Uh, But like you said, it's possible. Um, Just seems like a lot more challenging potentially in that setting. Right. Yeah. The the fellow that we do have now who is a new grad, she had a level two in Um, acute care. So that made it a little bit easier of a transition um, to focus on. It's it's more that they don't want to have to focus on lower level things like the safety part, because then that kind of takes away from the fellow getting exposure to like higher level clinical reasoning and having like outside experiences that are a lot more advanced. Right. And I think that's the key balance piece with new grads And I speak from experience because I graduated in June of, I have to do the math, June of 2018, and then I started the fellowship in August, and there was not enough time to to work in between, especially since I had to move for the fellowship as well. But I think in my case, too, it was a a tough balance because they really wanted to teach those advanced neurorehabilitation skills and really give me opportunities for that. But I didn't have much experience in neurorehabilitation. The way that my school did field work, we didn't have as much choice um, as far as what setting we were in and what population we worked with. So the reason why I chose to do the fellowship in part was because this was a population I knew I wanted to work with. 
And I thought if I went into a traditional entry-level job, I wouldn't be as well-equipped for my patients as I could be. So, but that also, like Samantha was saying, kind of like presents some issues with me trying to learn some of the kind of more basic neurorehabilitation skills while they're trying to prepare an advanced practitioner. So I think this is a good conversation to be having for people who are interested in starting a fellowship. Each of our experiences was different, and I think that depends on what the fellowship program is really set up for and where our own skill sets are. Yeah, definitely. So when I was looking into fellowship programs, um, that was one of the things I looked at because a lot of them do require or prefer that you have anywhere from three to five years experience or in your case, Samantha, uh, having that one year. Um, So Children's was one of the, or Cincinnati Children's was one of the ones that did not require all of that extensive experience. Mm -hmm. And at least when I looked, I know that more have been certified since I applied, but I know when I initially looked at applying for fellowships, most of the pediatric ones did require some experience. Um, So that's what was more appealing to me for the Cincinnati Children's one is that they specifically said it was more structured for newer graduates, not necessarily fresh out of school, but not necessarily more than three years experience. Mm So I think you're also bringing up a really good point that each fellowship is very different. Mm -hmm. And unlike potentially field works where there are really clear learning objectives, and while some people have pretty unique experiences, for the most part, I think a lot of us had very similar field works regardless of setting, right? Like you have your field work supervisor. Each week you gain a little bit more responsibility. You do a project. It's usually 12 weeks. Some schools do it a little bit differently. But it it kind of all can look the same. I think with fellowships, one of the first things I think we should really highlight is that each program is very different. And while they all align with certain standards that AOTA has set forth, they leave a lot of room for each site to decide what resources they have that they can provide to make it the best experience possible at their sites. So I'm excited to hear all the differences uh, that all three of us had in our experiences. And you mentioned, Marissa, too, that there's a few more sites that have been added. So if it's okay with you guys, I want to just tell the listeners the different practice settings that they could pursue a fellowship in so as we're talking they can kind of frame what we're saying in terms of what areas they might want to pursue yeah okay so the different settings that they have for aota fellowships are the acute and critical care section so that would be what samantha is involved in or and did there's assistive technology there's only one of those also one of burns and dysphagia Um, a few for gerontology, quite a few for hand therapy, mental health, neurology, pediatrics, and physical rehabilitation. Um, There's currently 42 AOTA fellowship sites that are fully approved, uh, five that are candidates, which I think that just means they're in their first year. I think so, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then five applicants. So they're in the process of developing their program and potentially um, already interviewing. I think that's what that means. So there's Quite a few. This is definitely growing. I think when I applied, there were 20-something, maybe 30. I was going to say, I remember with pediatrics, there were maybe four or five when I initially applied. Mm -hmm. And out of all of those, again, um, Cincinnati Children's was the only one that didn't require the extra experience. Um, And last time I checked, I know there were seven or eight. So they're definitely Mm -hmm. becoming more common and uh, more integrated into, I think, OT practice and more people know about them. Because I remember in school... I was the only one who knew about the fellowships until I brought it up in class and everyone had no idea that that was even an option. So 
Yeah. Samantha, when you were looking at fellowship programs, did you consider applying to multiple sites or did you kind of see the one program that you wanted to apply for and that was your goal? Um, it's actually kind of interesting. So I worked the year that I worked before I did the fellowship, I was working at Duke and okay. um, I didn't really know about fellowships while I was in school. And so after I started working, I talked to the fellow, the current fellow who was doing the critical care fellowship while I was working at Duke. And she was talking to me a lot about um, the benefits of it and things she's learned and that kind of stuff. And so then I became interested and I love acute care. So that was my go-to. Um, so just the fact that I had worked in acute care and I loved it so much is really what drove me to stick with that one type of fellowship when I applied. I'm curious. So you worked in the same, you worked at Duke, you were already in acute care. Were you working in critical care at all before the fellowship? Um, a little bit. So I work on cardiothoracic surgery. And at the time I was working on a step down unit. And then once a week I would float to the cardiothoracic surgery ICU, but I hadn't had much experience in other ICUs. So what was the experience like working somewhere and then staying there, but transitioning roles into that fellow role? Um, that was probably, I will say that that was probably the biggest negative that I have which is my own fault. Um, it was really hard to go from being a fully productive therapist, which I'm very type A. And if you give me a productivity standard, I'm going to meet it. And so when I was just a staff therapist, I was always overproductive. And then the fellowship has a productivity standard, but it's a lot lower. So it's only like 60%, um, which... I learned is still kind of high when you're trying to do outside experiences. So I personally had trouble with like letting go of the productivity side of it. Um, sure. So I think that that was the hardest part of it for me. It was the nice part was all of the mentors knew me and they kind of knew what I already knew for lack of better words. <laughs> um, they kind of understood where I was in a clinical like skill level perspective. So it was a lot easier for them to like meet me where I was at. And there was less like figuring out what do you know? What don't you know? What are you uncomfortable with? And they didn't have to use as much time orienting me to the facility as a whole, which was nice. Okay. That is, yeah. So you kind of could skip some of that initial stuff to jump into the new skills that you wanted to learn and really those extra experiences. Right. So before we get too much further, I think it's already pretty clear that each of our fellowships had a different format, right? And so by format, um, for listeners, you know, I just mean um, potentially length of time, um, what settings we were in, whether we were in multiple settings or whether we stuck to one, whether we had one-to-one -one mentorship all the time or were more sort of off on our own with more mentorship touch points. And we'll get into the mentorship later because I think that's a really important part. And um, you talked about productivity, Samantha. Every every fellowship is so different. So I'm curious in kind of broad strokes, if each of us could just describe what our what the format of our experience was. What were the different components and how was our time broken up? Yeah, so I'll go first. So for the fellowship at Cincinnati Children's, it starts in June and then it ends May the following year. So it's just one year long. 
for the first two, two and a half months, I had to do a developmental and sensory competency. So that's not unique to the fellowship. Anyone who gets hired on at Cincinnati Children's has to do certain competencies. And if you're going to be a general developmental outpatient therapist, you have to do the developmental and sensory competency. Um, Cincinnati Children's has a lot of specific things that they do is in regards to treatment and um, evidence-based practices and what we do or don't recommend. So that's kind of providing that um, extra support and making sure that you understand how they do things at Cincinnati Children's. So for that, it's kind of like field work for those two and a half months. You're one-on-one with um, a trainer that's been um, certified to do that through the hospital. And you, it's kind of like field work in the sense that you do slowly take on their caseload and then eventually by the end you're treating. But it's obviously more expedited with the understanding that you just came from field work. So I feel like field work too, for me at least, was more, let me just figure out how to write goals. Let me figure out how to structure treatment. Let's just figure out kind of how, generally speaking, to be an OT. And then the developmental and sensory competency was, okay, you have those basic skills. Let's really push you with your clinical reasoning and kind of develop that. So I feel like over those two and a half months, I really got a lot of that experience. And then after you're done with that competency is when the schedule for the rest of the year kind of follows in. So on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I participated in the LEN program, which was built into the fellowship. So that just stands for Leadership, Education, and Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. It's a mouthful, but basically it's an interdisciplinary training team. So in the mornings on Tuesday, Thursdays, everyone is in clinics. And that varies from, we have uh, the Kelly O'Leary Center for Autism, the Thomas Center for Down Syndrome. Uh, We have the Perlman Center for Assistive Technologies. So there's all these different clinics that you rotate through in the mornings on those days. And then from one to five on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're basically in didactic coursework. So we have uh, lectures either from the hospital or from local areas around Cincinnati that come in and kind of teach us about best practices, again, interdisciplinary care. Um, So those are the Tuesday, Thursdays. On Mondays is really kind of the fellowship day. So on those days, I'm rotating through competencies that are developed and worked into the fellowship. So I started off with um, the oral motor and feeding competency. That's another one we had to do. So um, you participate in that. Then you transition to inpatient. So I spent one Monday for uh, probably about two months rotating through the different areas in the hospital. So um, one Monday was in the PICU, one was in the SICU, one was in inpatient rehab. So you kind of rotate through those to get some experience. Were those more observational or um, how actively were you treating? It depended on the training. Some of them, especially when we were in cardiac ICU and we had little babies on ECMO and stuff like that, I'm not really (laughs) either either (laughs) comfortable besides, you know, sometimes it's okay, do you want to range their other arm while I work on this one? Um, But then other therapists were a little bit more, hey, do you want to join in on this activity? What do you Mm -hmm. think we do differently? So it kind of depended on Mm -hmm. the person. And I think they also kind of felt out your comfort level as well. Sure. Um, But they were all really welcoming to kind of be open to whatever you were comfortable with. And then after that, I spent about two months on Mondays doing research. So it kind of is flexible for our program, at least 
and you're able to work with um, our OT faculty for LEND who does a lot of research and she provided me with some options and I ended up writing uh, a qualitative manuscript for picky eating for kids with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was really cool that that was kind of worked in. So I'm getting hopefully published in the next couple months. Oh, so exciting. Yeah. And then the last ones are College Hill. So we have um, an inpatient residential center and then we also have inpatient acute for psychology or psychiatric patients. So you spend, I probably spent seven days, I think, total between all of those different um, settings in psych. And then the last ones are inpatient rehab. So you spend um, two weeks in inpatient rehab, getting some more experience with that. And then the last one is ONRT. So it's our in to out patients that are coming out of acute care, um, but are still needing some of that higher level treatment. So um, those were Mondays. Sorry, ours is kind of Every day is different. No, this is so organized. The type A in me is like loving how organized you are. Yeah. (laughs) But every I can tell Samantha likes it too. Our type A people over here. (laughs) And then last two days, so Wednesdays, um, I spent working in the TIP program. So it's the Therapeutic Interagency Preschool Program. And that is a preschool program that works with Head Start in the Cincinnati area, and they provide Mm -hmm. a preschool program for kids who have been through abuse and neglect. So that was a really unique experience. Um, And there, again, I'm one-to-one with a mentor who works there um, 20 hours a week. And then Fridays was the one day, or Fridays were the one days that I was alone, um, and I was working just uh, outpatient caseload by myself. So that is the structure of our fellowship. Okay. So I was actually wondering then how you would maintain a caseload um, with only working one day a week. But if you were an outpatient, that makes a lot more sense. So your patients would just only schedule on Fridays and they kind of knew that was the only day you were available. Yep. Yeah. They had it actually specifically structured to where our 10 to 12, I worked 10 to 6. We have to have family friendly hours. Sure. Um, So a certain percentage of your hours have to be outside the nine to five. So mine was just pushed so that it was 10 to 6. So I got my hours at the end of the day. Nice. And um, my 10 to 12 slot was always developmental or general evaluations because they want you to really keep up with um, the standardized assessments and mm-hmm. kind of the flow of evals. And then the rest of the day was um, just filled with one hour treatment sessions. So okay. yeah, but it's the same like you were saying, if someone's going to get um, scheduled for an episode, it's just going to be on Friday at two every week. So okay, great. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that because I think all of ours are going to be so different. And so to hear how yours are structured, um, yeah, it's fascinating to me. So I'm excited. I want to hear Samantha's too, and then I'll share mine. Yeah. Um, Mine was a lot less structured. (laughs) So (laughs) basically you spent 12 weeks in each ICU. And then, so the first one was the neuro ICU. And then the next 12 weeks was split with six weeks in the cardiology ICU and then six weeks in cardiothoracic ICU. Um, and then 12 weeks in the MICU and 12 weeks in the SICU. So the medical ICU and the surgical ICU. Lots of interesting things. So a lot of therapists at Duke work altered schedules. Like I work Sunday through Thursday. And so the first two modules, the therapist 
that were the mentors also worked Sunday through Thursday. And then after those modules, all of the rest of the mentors work Monday through Friday. So then my work schedule changed, um, okay. which was a little bit interesting. The Each module, the mentor and I would kind of just determine a time each week to have our discussions, um, like formal discussions based on whatever time worked for us. So we would do article reviews every week based on um, specific treatment interventions or population specific things for that module. And we would meet mm -hmm. and discuss those every week. And then each module, the mentor would develop like extra learning experiences for me based on things that I told them that I wanted more experience in, like in the neuro ICU, the therapist did um, an extra learning experience on like visual tracking and visual assessment and mm. determining neglect versus field cut and all those kinds of things that are kind of hard to weed out the differences in. That's good. Um, and then the interesting thing is at Duke, there's not another OT fellowship right now. They're developing the hands one, but there are a lot of PT fellowships. So on every second Thursday, we would have a narrative reasoning meeting. And so it was every fellow. So like it was me and seven PT fellows and we would meet and discuss wow. a case. And the focus of that discussion would be on like the more emotional side of the case. So like a very difficult patient case that like you struggled with emotionally because of like the treatments they were getting or because of the family situation or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. Um, so that was very interesting because we would discuss, we would present the case and then we would all discuss things about how the treatment went and kind of get feedback from each other. And so it was very interesting to be the only OT and thinking from an OT perspective rather than a PT perspective. Yeah. Um, and Did then, you feel a lot of pressure? Like you had to be the uh, one representative of OT, you know, and get it all right? <laughs> um, I don't know about that. It was funny though, because some, so the, the funny part is like the number of PT fellowships is like so broad. So it goes from like, there's a neuro fellowship, which is inpatient, which is the same setting as me, um, all the way to like sports where they're going to like, they're the athletic PT. So they go with the okay. athletic from Duke. So Sometimes I felt like I would be saying things and some of them would look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and then, but the impatient PT was like, no, that was great. I totally got it. You know, like it was just funny. Um, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Like recommendations that I would make for treatment interventions in the outpatient setting that they were like, what are you talking about? Um, so that was interesting. And then we had, so the as far as the, extra experiences it was very not structured so with each module the mentor would give me like a list of extra experiences that the previous fellow had done and like resources available to me so these clinics are available to you to go to and that kind of stuff and then it was basically up to me to pick which ones I wanted and when I did them which I appreciated because sometimes I feel like they might they would maybe schedule experiences that you're like that doesn't interest me at all like, it does not interest mm -hmm. me to go to a hand clinic, you know? So it was nice in the sense that you got to pick what was going to benefit you the most. Um, but that caused, that just made you have to be very proactive about 
what things you wanted to do and like be proactive about actually scheduling them. So that was the general overview of the structure. Okay. And how long was your program? Did you say yours was a full year? It was a year. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't add up Um, all the 12 week modules. (laughs) July. Yeah. It's, it's, um, the end of July to the end of July. Okay. Gotcha. I was going to jump in too. So we also did something similar with the PT residents. So I'm the only OT fellow um, because they only have the pediatric fellowship. But at Children's, they have one developmental PT resident and then they had three sports ortho PT residents. So we didn't meet quite as frequently um, as it sounds like they did at Duke, but we did meet once every quarter. And what we did is uh, the PT fellowship or PT resident. It always messes me up because we call I it fellowship and residency. <laughs> um, and sometimes people just say, "Oh, you're the OT resident," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not going to correct you." <laughs> We're yeah, mine, the- correct, mine changed in the middle too. <laughs> Oh, no. Right. Yeah. I don't fault the mentors because they've been, you know, calling it the residency forever. So then it would be hard to change. But yeah, so we met um, and each each case study was a different diagnosis. And it was um, they were actually patients that the PT um, PT residency coordinator Mm -hmm. had seen. Um, So I think initially, and I didn't ask this specifically, but based on how it was structured, I think initially these were more case studies for the PT residents, and then they started including the OT fellow into Mm -hmm. case studies. I don't know if that's for sure what it is, but when we would look at the questions, most of them would be PT related, like what kind of stretching, how do you think his range of motion is, what kind of, you know, modality Mm -hmm. do you think you could use, and then maybe there was a question or two of, how do you think his ADLs are impacted or something like that? So, I mean, it was nice because I did get to be kind of the quote unquote expert in the room because I was the only Mm -hmm. OT OT perspective, but it did kind of feel like I was just kind of added into the case study. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a newer thing. I never asked. So I don't know if it was a newer thing to add the OT fellow, but it was still nice to get that experience talking with the other PT residents um, kind of of some other considerations that they may need to think about when treating their patients. So, yeah. Before I kind of give the format of my fellowship, I'm curious: was there only one fellow at a time at both of your sites, and how long had the fellowship been in existence before you joined? Yeah. So I there's only one at a time for me. So I've okay. I actually helped with interviews, and we since there's a pandemic going on, normally we would have them come in person to interview Mm -hmm. and the current OT fellow gives a tour of the hospital and kind of answers any questions. Um, But clearly that was not an option this time. So (laughs) I was walking around on our fourth floor, um, which is the OTPT floor in our medical office building with my FaceTime up. (laughs) (laughs) This is our hand washing station. This is our fine motor rooms. And um, we forgot to tell the other therapist. So it was just funny because people were looking at me like, why is this girl (laughs) showing her mom on FaceTime or something? You know, like, why is this girl? That's so funny. Um, Our clinic. But yeah, so I've uh, been in contact with the next fellow. So she'll start in June. So there's only one. And I feel like you asked a second question and now I'm forgetting. (laughs) Oh, um, how long had the fellowship been at your site before you became the fellow? Like, you know, how many fellows before you, I guess? I know there's been at least seven because okay. 
I know at the TIP program, the mentor that I'm with there said that she she had only had seven fellows before me working at TIP, but I know initially TIP was not worked into the fellowship. So that's actually a great question. I'm not quite sure how long it's been in existence for a while. Sure. That's, that sounds like it. I mean, fellowship programs, I think have been around, but for, for a bit of time, but they really only started to gain traction. So it sounds like yours might be one of the uh, original, you know, programs potentially. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've been around terribly long. Yeah. But I'm not sure the, the date. How about you, Samantha? Um, yes, mine had been in existence for three years. Okay. And there's only one fellow at a time also. Okay, great. So I'll give you guys kind of an overview of what mine was like. So uh, I, I feel like we went in order of most structured to least structured, <laughs> which again, I think, I think this is going to be good because I think each of our descriptions is going to resonate with different people and that'll really help folks who are thinking about applying understand kind of the the questions they need to be asking when they go in for an interview um, or when they start to kind of inquire about applying. So I'm, I think this is really good. So mine was a lot less structured. There were three major components, I would say, um, well, four if we count kind of a miscellaneous other category, but clinical was definitely the top priority. Most of my time was spent um, in clinical practice. So a good portion, I would say, so like if we had to put percentages to it, I would say about 70% was spent in the clinic, uh, about 15, 15 to 20%. This is not going to equal 100, I can already tell. 15 to 20% was probably spent in the school. So because it's a university hospital system, we had the opportunity to work with um, a professor and researcher there. And so we did a combination of research activities and also helping to teach in the OTD program. So we were, we were mentored colleagues. So we weren't teaching our own courses, but we were teaching labs, helping to teach lab sections. And we were doing kind of like guest lectures or alternating whether the main faculty member would do the lecture or whether um, the, my co-fellow and I, so we had two fellows, so whether my co-fellow and I would do um, some different lectures and lead labs. So that was really good experience. And and that was, um, yeah, I would say that was probably 15 to 20% of the time. And then somewhere between 5 and 10% of the time was other activities. So you guys talked about those conferences kind of things, those meetings you would have either quarterly or weekly or monthly to review either a case example or um, to talk about, you know, relevant topics. So we would have that. I would say, so for the clinical perspective, I'll start with that. We had two main sites. So we would go into inpatient rehab and outpatient rehab at Ohio State. And so that's part of why they had two fellows, I think, is because it's hard to have a caseload in outpatient for six months. And then what do you do with all of those patients who had you as our therapist, it's hard to take a full caseload and split it between a few other OTs. So this way, it was a really nice transition where my co-fellow started at outpatient and I picked up whoever she had not yet discharged. I kind of picked them up and then I started to add in my own evaluations and that's how I built up my caseload and outpatient. And the same, it, it's different, of course, for inpatient because the stays are shorter. But when I did leave inpatient to transition to outpatient, any patients I still had would transition to my co-fellow. So uh, that's kind of how it goes. It just sort of flops every six months. Who's going to have um, like that outpatient caseload? So that's what the clinical part looked like. 
And as far as the mentorship piece of that, we were in the clinic five days a week, um, either inpatient or outpatient. And we pretty much had to structure how we wanted mentorship. Of course, at the beginning, they they definitely made sure to be there for most of my sessions one-on-one, at least for the first couple of weeks. One, because I was a new grad and I was new to this setting. So I think that was very responsible to have somebody with me like all the time just to make sure that I was on starting out right. And then from there, it was really, who do I need mentorship with? So if, you know, for my first uh, patient that had a spinal cord injury, I wanted to know, okay, what is this, what is this going to look like? What, how am I creating a plan of care that's really going to be comprehensive and, and achieve what we need to do in the time that we have right. with them? So I would reach out to one of the therapists that specialized in spinal cord injury and I would say, hey, can you join me for this uh, evaluation or can you join me for this first treatment session and can we also meet before or after and talk about treatment planning? So it was very much me seeking out mentorship and saying, here's what I need from you. Um, and so we kind of had just had access to the whole clinical staff. The other thing though, and Samantha, this kind of sounds similar to your experience where they tell you all the possible extra opportunities you have, and then you kind of pick and choose what you yeah. want to pursue. Yeah. And um, that, that was very similar. So for us at Ohio state, there's quite a large spectrum, um, especially in adult neuro rehab of services. So there was a spinal cord injury program, seating and positioning clinic, brain injury program, disorders of consciousness program, stroke services, multiple sclerosis team, Parkinson's team, assistive technology center, vestibular and neurovision team, movement disorders clinic. And I believe there was actually a few more, but those are the ones I have at the top of my head and written down. Um, And so all of those experiences, some of them like spinal cord injury, brain injury, and stroke were really just my clinical work. Like those were the three major populations I worked with. And so um, that was really well integrated already. But for example, seating and positioning clinic, I would contact the therapist who ran the clinic, see when she had a case that she thought might be interesting for me to be part of. And then I would show up. The problem is that whenever I would schedule those frequently, people don't show up to therapy, right? Especially when there's physical barriers to them getting there, um, which you know, if they're coming to a seating and positioning clinic, there's probably some barriers to them navigating their world. So, um, so that would kind of throw things off if I scheduled three hours to be in a seating and positioning clinic uh, session and then they didn't show up. (laughs) Right. So it definitely took Mm -hmm. a lot of self structured, you know, you know, like managing your own time, really figuring out how can I make all this work while still maintaining my productivity standards. And we were at, we were expected to do 75% of what a full-time typical therapist, like non-fellow would do. We had the expectation of doing 75% of that. Some of that was mentor time. Um, most of it, I would say, was not mentor time. Um, it was working in the clinic. And then, like I said, the teaching was kind of sporadic. So um, if there was a class happening that we were involved in, we'd go there for a couple hours a week. And during the you know winter when there wasn't classes, we just wouldn't do anything with teaching. We'd spend a little bit more time on research. And then we had those fellowship conferences, which I think sounds a little bit different than what you guys did. Um, my co-fellow and I would alternate months, and each of us would have to prepare a presentation either about a certain population and kind of general, like what does it look like to do stroke evaluation or down to very specific things like what does um, what does it look like for us to create goals for brain cancer um, clients? Like what are our goals, how are our goals going to look different? And so we would ha- be given a topic and we'd have to prepare an in-service essentially for all the therapy staff, which I think was really a good experience. So yeah, it was very much um, fluid. We were also told, you know, if we wanted to go to clinical rounds at the hospital, which would be, you know, hundreds of people in a lecture hall, we could go to those. 
we could attend the neuropsych case study sessions where we would talk about a case that was really hard, um, maybe emotionally or psychologically for the therapist. So yeah, it was very um, much, we structured our time how we wanted. And I think that my co-fellow and I had very different schedules. Like if you were to compare our schedules, I don't know if you'd be super clear we did the same fellowship necessarily. I was going to add one more thing too. So in the first, I guess, semester, which would be kind of midway after you finish your developmental and sensory competency, so mid-August to December, um, there, I mean, my schedule was packed every Tuesday, Thursday with those clinical times, 8 to 12. They had something specific in my calendar. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like for the second semester, there was a lot more not necessarily free time because you are supposed to be working, but right. there are a lot more <laughs> openings on Tuesday, Thursday mornings. Um, but yeah, so the second semester, so January through May, I feel like there was a lot more extra time kind of structured into where you could either be working on assignments for the LEN program that we did. Or in my case, um, for example, I really liked the Perlman Center, which was for AAC devices. And then they also had early intervention um, okay. classrooms for kids. So I tried to add my set, like kind of what you guys did generally through your fellowships is I tried to contact people and say, hey, I have this Tuesday morning open. Can I see more of this? And it was really flexible in that sense. Um, and then especially in May, mm -hmm. things kind of, um, what am I trying to say? Ramp down, I guess. Um, so there were a lot more opportunities for me to talk to my fellowship supervisor and say, hey, I really liked this setting. Can I get more of this? Um, and so then this last month has kind of been a little bit more of that. Um, I also forgot to mention, I keep forgetting all these things. And then you mentioned things and I'm like, oh, I did I that. <laughs> um, so one negative thing I will say is that Duke does not have an OT program at the moment. They're mm. in the midst of developing one. Um, but from a research perspective, that was a negative. Um, there was a PT research going on, a PT research study going on. So we kind of just got grouped into that. Um, okay. Because it's very hard to do research at a big facility like Duke without an OT program, which is a whole nother discussion. That's like a facility issue. But um so the research was a little bit limited and then okay. we did get to do some teaching which I really enjoyed though because UNC has an OT program and then we would get to teach at Durham Tech which is the OTA program so we were oh, great. given those opportunities which I really enjoyed yeah it seems like every site does things differently but these ideas of like teaching and engaging in the scholarly piece of it and you know in some element of research um, those seem to be kind of common threads. It just looks very different in each program. And so, for example, um, before I started the fellowship, even while I was still in school, I kind of started to realize that I was one of the people in my cohort in OT school that really got excited about research, and I didn't dread the research classes. I was like, oh, yeah, I got a comment. You know, let me – I was like very geeking out to the research mm -hmm. stuff. And so I started to realize, okay, not everybody's excited about this. Maybe a research career is something I could consider. And so going into the fellowship, I kind of used it as an opportunity to, to figure that out a little bit more. So I really was interested in that. And so I talked to the fellowship coordinators and said, I'd like to really prioritize spending some more time in the school doing research. You know, of course, still maintaining my clinical um, standards, but just wanted to explore that and see if that was a possibility. Whereas my co-fellow really 
didn't have as much of an interest in that. And while she was more than happy to participate in the research component, I think for her, it was less of a priority. And so we had a little bit of that flexibility to kind of say, hey, you know, this is an area I might want to pursue later. Can I get a taste of it here? You know, and I think that's a nice feature of the fellowships overall. I was going to say one thing too that um, because it sounds like you guys both got some teaching experience. So while our LEND program is associated with UC, University of um, Cincinnati, we did not have direct teaching experiences, but through the LEND program, um, I mean, we were all of our disciplines. So let's see if I can get them all right. We had OTPT speech, psychology, uh, developmental pediatrician, uh, genetic counselors. Mm -hmm. I know I'm missing people, (laughs) but we had a whole lot of different disciplines that while we all generally understood what we all did, we didn't really have an in-depth, I think, understanding before doing the program. And so throughout the mm-hmm. whole program, we did presentations about our disciplines and kind of taught through that sense. And we also did um, basically kind of like a case study, but um, well, what would we call it? They call it interdisciplinary training team. And basically each semester we're split into two groups and each group gets a patient that gets evaluated by everyone. Oh, audiology is another one. I just remember mm-hmm. here. Um, but basically we all evaluate, um, both of the kids and usually they're, um, suspected for possibly having autism. Okay. So through those, we each do our own evaluations. And then at the end of the semester, as we go, we present kind of our case on them. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of, I guess that's the way that they kind of work in the teaching component in their fellowship, but it's not going to an OT school and teaching, um, that way. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think according to the AOTA standards, it's very much up to interpretation in some ways, how each mm-hmm. site wants to carry out the didactic portion and whether it's actual teaching experience or just more of the, you are on the receiving end of the didactic um, modules. Um, and I think a lot of programs have a combination of those two. I know that's kind of how mine was. Um, yeah. That's so interesting how different they are. I want to ask a question too, that I think this might be the best place to ask it. Whenever people have inquired about fellowships to me, and part of what motivated this episode um, was just that people reach out and want to know, and um, I just feel like I can only give one perspective, and I think this interview makes it so clear that my perspective is is only one. Um, like I said, even the other person who did the fellowship with me, I think would give some different perspectives. So um, I love that we're getting three very different experiences. But one question I get a lot that people feel really awkward asking is if you get paid. Um, and so without talking amounts, um, just kind of a general sense, can you tell us like whether that was an experience where you got paid um, and was it the amount that a, an OT coming in at a normal entry-level job would have? Less? More? i say it's, for me, it was less than um, an entry-level OT would be making. And that was kind of also a tricky transition for me since right. I did travel therapy before that, which pays higher than the average. Right. Um, so I went from making a lot of money to making a lot less money. <laughs> but I mean, it sounds like all of us had um, pretty positive experiences. So for me, at least it was, I already knew that going in that while it is paid, it's less because, you know, you're participating in a lot of mentorship and training. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was totally worth it for me, at least. I, right. I mean, 
I don't have a whole lot in my savings account right now, but you know, <laughs> I can there, right? <laughs> knowledge. So that's awesome. But yeah, sure. Um, I actually got lucky. So if you are applying to the fellowship and you are not a Duke employee, you get paid 30 hours salary, whatever that is. I don't, I can't tell you the number cause I don't know. Um, but since I was already an employee, they let me keep my salary. Oh, that's nice. Wow. Was nice. Good deal. The only thing that was a little tricky is when I worked for a year, my schedule was Sunday through Thursday. And so the pay, the payment amount is different based on your schedule. So if you work a weekend day, you make more than if you work Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I had to transition to Monday through Friday, because the other mentors were Monday through Friday, my payment, my pay changed because of that reason. Oh. Um, but the difference being, I already worked there, so they weren't going to say, you're going to do this really cool thing, but we're going to like punish you by taking away <laughs> 10 hours salary. So they didn't do that to me. Um, versus if you're an outside applicant, you get a 30 hour salary um, pay. Sure. I think if I remember correctly, they said it was 65%. It's either 65 or 75. I can't remember. I know how much I make per hour, but um, of an entry level. Okay. Yeah. And um, for the fellowship at Ohio State, because it's about a 75% productivity standard, um, because they know you're spending time doing other things, they pay 75% of what an entry level outpatient therapist would make. So they just kind of say, here's what we pay our entry-level therapists, and 75% of that is what we're expecting from you. That's kind of the value that you can bring to the department, um, you know, as far as our, like, the monetary value that we can bring. So that's what we were paid. So I I do like to tell people that, yes, it's not as much as you might be making, but especially if you're coming in either as a new grad or in your first year, it's more than you were probably making in school. So. Right. So So for me, you know, I knew that if I'd gone into a different position, I could have made more money. But I think as Marissa pointed out, you're, you gain so many just invaluable skills that, you know, you can't put, you can't put a money amount on the skills that you're learning and the way you're developing professionally. So it's worth it for a year, I think, especially if you, if you can afford it and you can make it work, um, you know, to be able to, to do that. Yeah, I could see where it would be hard going from a full-time job and then getting that right. kind of cut. Um, but again, like you right. said, since I came pretty much out of school, it wasn't right. like, oh, I'm still making some money. So, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing that I just want to add in is that I know at least for me there were health benefits, retirement. So yep. in that way, it really did – the contract really was structured as it would have been for a different job the title was just different and the actual salary amount was less because of the reasons we just talked about. So I do want to highlight this is not another field work. This is another job. You are an OT by the time you go into a fellowship and you are a colleague, you know, you are operating under your own license. You're expected to be a therapist. It's just advancing those skills. And because of the investment that they're giving, you know, putting into you to invest in those skills, they can't pay you as much. Yeah. Just want to get out, get that out there. One thing that was tough for me, and it was totally um, just not meant 
this way, but when I did start out, some of since I was the first fellow to have ever gone through, well, one of the first two fellows to have ever gone through the program, any of the um, clinical staff that was not directly involved in the planning of the program maybe didn't fully understand the fellowship yet, which makes sense. And some of those therapists would introduce me as their student. Um, and that was a little frustrating, Whoa. but all it took was a little bit of communication of just saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a real, I'm a real therapist. Um, <laughs> um, and, and that was solved in no time. Um, but anyway, I think just to assert that this is not another level two field work, you know, how much is, I think sometimes the way people can feel, um, when they're looking at fellowship programs. So I'm curious if we can talk about why you even applied to a fellowship and if throughout that process or, you know, for Marissa, while you're still in that process, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Samantha and I, you know, now that we're done and have had some time to reflect on it too, did we, the reason why we applied, does that match up with what we gained from the program? And, you know, do we feel like that it really satisfied what we were looking for? So Samantha, do you actually mind starting? During my first year, as a practicing therapist, I found myself like wanting to do so much more than I was doing. Like, I want to research this. I want to learn about this. I want to treat a patient that has this diagnosis, which is really hard to do when you're a primary therapist on a certain service. And then I would like find myself going home and spending two hours like researching things. And I'm like, this is not what I'm supposed to do when I leave work. I'm supposed to live my life. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I felt like I was like, not able to get everything in that I wanted to during work to satisfy like the things I still wanted to learn. And so I thought that the fellowship would be a really good opportunity to have more balance in the sense that time is built in for me to be nerding out and researching these things and learning about things right. that <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily get to learn about before. Um, I also wanted to like, we have a lot of float therapists who can basically go anywhere. And that is crazy to me or was crazy to me. I was like, I want to be able to do that, even though my position that I have now is not a float therapist, mm -hmm. but I wanted to be able to, if necessary and feel comfortable treating patients everywhere. Because as we know, like my patient who had heart surgery, their only problem is not that they had heart surgery. Maybe they had a stroke after, maybe they have an underlying condition of something else. Um, so I felt like that I wasn't equipped to treat all of the extra things that come with a patient with a certain diagnosis. Right. Um, and I 100% think that the things that I wanted to get out of it align with what I got out of it because now I can go to any ICU and treat a patient and I feel completely comfortable and that would have taken like 10 years probably to get that experience being a therapist, a primary therapist on a different service. Like you don't have the opportunity just to say, I'm going to go to neuro today because you that's you can't do that. You have patients that you have to see. Um, so being able to get all of the cross training and that stuff would have taken a long, long time um, to get the level of experience that I got in one year. Yeah. I think that's that's you're really highlighting some of the major value of fellowships, just how much variety of, you know, kind of the variety of experiences that you get and you just can't get that in a normal job. Yeah. And it's, it prepares you so well for other positions and really opens up doors for you um, to say, you know, I actually do have experience with this and it's even mentored, right? Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I'm definitely one of those people that wants to know everything you can possibly know about something, and I like to feel very prepared. Like, over this past mm-hmm. year, I've had to get, I've been working on trying to get more comfortable with not planning and with being able to just go with the flow, especially in treatment sessions, which, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I mean, I've definitely had a lot of experiences where I go in with this plan and then today that's not where we're at. So I feel like I really wanted a fellowship to one kind of give me more training, more mentorship, because while my field work to supervisor was great. um, Again, I feel like field work to you're spending just trying to figure everything out and not as much getting that specialized training. And then also it's Mm -hmm. dependent upon your person, your clinical supervisor's caseload. So, you know, I only got to see, the kids that she was seeing. Um, and in addition to my field work too, was an outpatient clinic. And so the population that you're going to see in a general pediatric outpatient clinic is completely different from uh, an outpatient clinic that's associated with a major children's hospital. Right. So I think the biggest thing for me that I wanted to get out of that is just be a more well-rounded therapist and get more comfortable mm-hmm. with all of the variety um, that you can see. And I do feel like I got that, um, especially through all of the competencies. Since again, my fellowship was really structured. Um, yeah. I mean, I rotated through hands clinics, um, cerebral palsy clinic, rheumatology, um, the sensory and developmental competencies that we talked about, mm-hmm. um, autism and Down syndrome. Like we got a lot of specialized training for different diagnoses. And because of that, I feel like I am one, much more prepared to just walk into any um, room and be able to come up with something or have at least some baseline of knowledge of where mm-hmm. treatment needs to go or how to treatment plan for those kids. Um, and then additionally, just getting that exposure. Like I would not have gotten half of the exposure to any of these diagnoses that I've learned about here if I was just treating by myself um, mm-hmm. for a year. So yeah, I definitely agree with both of y'all that the amount of training that you get and exposure mm-hmm. um, was probably the biggest part for me. Yeah. I think I mentioned this before, but the reason why I, there was a few reasons why I applied, but I think the main motivating force was that I really discovered towards the end of my program that I thought adult neuro rehab was really where I wanted to be, which is funny because I came into the program wanting to be a pediatric therapist since I was 11. I think I decided I was going to be a pediatric OT. And then of course I had this like life crisis at 20. Like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to do PEDS. I think I want to work in adult neuro rehab. And so, um, so I, I realized though the experiences, as I mentioned before with field work, I didn't have an, much of an opportunity. I mostly had worked with like chronic stroke as in the neuro realm, but certainly not as much with acute stroke. And even my experience in the critical care unit in level two, um, you know, you can just do very different occupation-based things in the critical care unit than you can in inpatient rehab and outpatient. So I didn't feel like I could carry over all of that. You know, I felt like I needed a lot of, of more experience to be really eligible for an entry-level job in neuro rehab. So my my motivation was I want this experience. I want to work with this population and I don't have the skills I need. I'd love to be able to have mentored experience. And I think I also kind of mentioned this before too, but I wanted to dabble in the teaching and the research a little bit. That was something of interest to me I thought was worth exploring early on so I could kind of create a better understanding of where I'd want to go in the future. And um, Mercy, you mentioned the benefits of large health systems and all three of us had fellowships in just really resource-heavy institutions that can provide just so much more than your standard 
clinic. Um, and so many just more connections and you get to meet other professionals from different disciplines as opposed to being in maybe just an OTPT specific clinic. And so I felt like all in all, that was going to be a really good combination to help me grow. What's interesting when I look, when I look at what I gained from the experience and my goals, it's interesting. I really wanted to be a neuro rehabilitation specialist. And that was just like really, um, this was a next step towards that. What I actually found though, is that I felt like I left there a much stronger generalist too, you know, which was kind of exciting. I, I was so set on the specialization and I want to be um, board certified in physical rehabilitation, which I still do, but um, it was very much specialist focused. I want to be a specialist with this group. And I felt like I just learned how to be a better OT in general and just appreciate um, appreciate the specialization and appreciate those unique skills and modalities that really you're going to use in that environment, but also just how to be a good therapist. And I think I I left there and after so much time of reflection, I just feel like I am a better OT from doing that, um, regardless of, of who I'm working with. I feel like my OT brain just got stronger. Um, and that was really big for me as well. Um, and I felt like too, that, you know, to be honest on a, on a very practical level, having a fellowship under your belt and having that on your resume really is helpful for next steps. Um, people see that and know that you are self-directed and you work really hard and you want to learn and you want to be the best you can be. And that is a huge marketable skill set for next steps, no matter what your next step is. So that was pretty motivating too. So I'm curious um, if there's anything in your fellowship that surprised you them the most, or, or what's something that surprised you the most from when you applied versus now? Um, what's something that you just really did not expect? Yeah. So for me going in um, now I have a clear understanding of the structure of the fellowship, but before coming in, it was kind of like, oh, you have this didactic portion and you've got this research portion and you've got the clinical portion. Um, and initially, not that I wasn't excited for the didactic portion, but I was kind of like, eh, it sounds like more school, like there's lectures <laughs> and all that stuff. Right. Um, but LEND actually ended up being my favorite part of the fellowship. So mm. um, one, got to learn super in-depth about the scope of all of these different potential healthcare providers that could be working with the kids that I'm working with. Um, and then two, I feel like the biggest part for me, so as part of the LEND program, they include family members of, so for us, we had um, parents of kids with various disabilities. And I feel like in general, you know, we get so into this kind of, I don't know if I'd call it like a scientific track, but um, seeing it kind of through that OT lens that, you know, the parents are such an integral part of treating in pediatrics. And so having the parents even just giving their opinions in our classes about, oh, yeah, we're talking about, you know, school-based services and how that relates to how we can advocate for the kids that we're working with. And then hearing the parents and their perspective of, man, it's really frustrating in an IEP meeting when I know that my kid, you know, needs help with a certain skill or, you know, I know that this rewards-based system that you've set up is not going to work for my child. I feel like that part has really been an integral part of developing me as an OT, kind of like what you were saying, Miranda, um, that I just feel like a better OT in general. Um, just because now I feel like not only am I going into sessions working on developing and treating the child, but I'm also going in with the 
thought process of, okay, the family is a part of this. What can Mm -hmm. I do not only to work on the kids' skills, but also to get that buy-in from the parents? Um, Because, I mean, you really need that. I like to tell people, you know, I'd like to think that I'm a miracle worker, but one hour of therapy with me a week is not going to progress your child as much as it would be (laughs) on board, practicing stuff at home. Um, And it's been really great to get that perspective of, you know, oh, like one of the biggest things that I've taken away is the family members telling us, you know, we love that you guys are the experts. We love that you guys have all these great things that we could do, but I can't do 10 things a day that you're asking me to do at home. So Mm -hmm. one thing, we'll work on it, reevaluate, see how it goes from there. Um, So I think that's really just helped me to develop my practice to be more family centered, which Mm -hmm. in general will help with child outcomes. So I think the biggest part for me was just the LEN program that surprised me because I, again, went in thinking, oh, it's more school. school. And then I left thinking like, wow, you know, I have now I also have people that I can, you know, text and say, hey, I'm having trouble with this kid, um, Mm -hmm. maybe with some sort, I don't know, whatever skill it would be that might be closer related to behavior. Maybe I can reach out to my psychology trainees and ask, you know, what's something that you've tried that has been successful um, or even getting opinions from like our social worker, like outside of our LEN program, I've reached out to our social work trainees for other kids that I had that were not related to the program, but they mentioned, you know, I don't feel like I have resources I need. Okay, cool. I'm going to reach out to my social work training and see what information oh. she has. So I feel like just kind of building that network and yeah, learning families has been the biggest thing for me. And that's probably going to last far beyond the fellowship itself because you've oh, yeah. developed those really um, solid professional relationships in that network. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I think mine would go along with professional relationships as well. So being in a big teaching university health system, um, I feel like I'm explaining what I do as a profession every time I talk to a new provider. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. I didn't really expect the fellowship to make that better, which sometimes, obviously, I still have to do that. But because I went to so many different services, I would have to interact with different providers. And now they remember me from that. So it can be a lot easier to communicate with them um, because they are familiar with me and they actually understand what I do now because they had to interact with me at other times. and. So it has helped me have a better network across the entire hospital rather Mm -hmm. than just like, okay, my providers on my service know me, but if I have to float and help someone, they're going to be like, who is this girl? What is she talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's helped me in that way a lot, which is not something I was necessarily expecting to gain from that. Yeah. And that's good. That's very, so useful. So useful, especially now that you're, you're still there and you are, um, I feel like it takes away that first step of collaborating with people. You already have a shared understanding of what you can each bring to the table and you can actually just spend more time focusing on the client's needs. Right. (laughs) You're not trying to justify why you're there. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Yeah. A couple of things surprised me. I'm having a hard time choosing because I think there's a lot I learned about myself, but I think we should talk about that separately. Um. So I think what's maybe surprised me the most was, well, one, kind of like what Marissa was saying, the structure of it, um, just all around how that ended up playing out was just different than I expected. So from a, a very just like concrete 
place of I thought this would be the way it looked and it, it was not. But once sort of I got over that and then figured out how the, the program was going to work, I think what surprised me was the way that I needed to advocate for mentorship. And what I mean by that is I feel like previously my fieldwork supervisors, my super, you know, supervisors in other jobs that I had outside of the realm of OT, um, teachers, um, people for whom I, I did research assistant work, um, I felt like it just naturally flowed really well where I didn't need to articulate the way I needed to be mentored. It just, a lot of those relationships just kind of happened naturally. And I felt like I was um, not needing to really say, oh, can we try something different for mentorship? It just always seemed to work out. And so it was different having so many different mentors in the fellowship and each one had a very different style. And, you know, I'm not saying they were bad styles. They just weren't necessarily always what I needed or what I was hoping for. And so the different ways of giving feedback, the different ways of, you know, is someone willing to mentor me before we go into a session or do they only want to see me in a session or do they only want to talk after a session? Do they want a more mentor on a consultative basis in the office when we're all just talking or do they want to be present hands-on in a session with me? And, you know, I think that was surprising for me because in the past, like I said, it had just kind of always worked out wonderfully where what I needed was what they were providing and I'd never needed to articulate that. And I think for the fellowship, again, just having so many different mentors, I needed to kind of learn how to articulate what I needed and really advocate for that, even if a mentor said, oh, no, no, but this works really well. And me saying, you know, I think that does work really well probably for a lot of people. I think for me, though, this isn't working for me. And how can we kind of work together to make it better? So, yeah, I think just having so many mentors was so good. I got so many different perspectives, but it was very surprising for me that I would like how I needed to approach mentorship and the role that I would need to take as a mentee of really um, saying what I needed and then following up on that. So did you guys have any of that experience with mentorship at all? Yeah, we had a lot of mentors because each module had a different mentor. Um, so, and all of them are like, they could not be more different. Sure. <laughs> so, that part was, I, I thought it would be challenging for me and it was, but it was not quite as bad as I expected. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 So for ours, we had the same thing where we had a different mentor for every single competency and um, practice area. And I feel like I didn't necessarily have the same experience as you, Miranda, where I felt like I was having to advocate for a certain type of teaching style. But I will say, too, that with some of, well, with a lot of the mentors, I was only with them for maybe a couple days at a time. Mm -hmm. um, so within those experiences, it wasn't like I was with the same person for months on end getting content sure. mentorship. Um, so I feel like with some of those, it was more just, um, especially the ones that were more observation based, it was more the understanding that you'll ask questions later when the family's not around mm -hmm. and that's how it's structured for that. Sure. Um, but I do feel like it was, it was cool to see so many different people's therapy styles as well outside of besides the mentorship, the mentorship was great, but also seeing mm -hmm. how they approach certain situations and getting to see all of their different clinical reasoning skills. Again, kind of like you were saying earlier, kind of developed me as an OT because mm -hmm. I feel like that's rare where most of the time you maybe get hired on and then you spend a week training, maybe two weeks and then they right. just let you go. And not that you, know, you can't learn that way, but 
I feel like getting to see people who have been in practice for 20 years and have, Mm -hmm. you know, their specialty Mm -hmm. down adds to your clinical knowledge because now you see, okay, this person's had 20 years to figure it out. Now I can take that. And this other person's had 15 years to figure it out. I could take that. Um, So getting that variety, I feel like was good. And also I feel like long-term, while I didn't have to advocate for a certain teaching style or learning style, when I do eventually begin supervising students, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm going to bring that perspective of, okay, this is what works for me. This is what doesn't work for me. Um, And kind of more so collaborating with students and saying what works Mm -hmm. for you as opposed to this is what works for me. So we're going to do it this way. So Mm -hmm. I think that's huge. I think that's a lesson in mentorship that probably from doing fellowships, we have all learned way earlier than most people. Um, I think that idea of realizing that it's very much mentorship is, is kind of customized to the, to the mentee mentor pairing and it's going to look different and that's okay. And we should be really adaptable. I think that's such a good lesson that we have learned so much earlier and that you're right. We can apply when we are mentoring students or um, new colleagues that we can really understand what it's like to be in that mentee position and um, understand that depending on the day or the person, you know, they're going to need something different from us. So I kind of hinted at this a little bit before, but I also felt like I learned about myself a little bit more. You know, I think any new environment, and again, for me, it was a new state, a whole new social circle outside of work. You know, I was, you know, I think you moved as well, Marissa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we both moved to a new place for our fellowship, and then you're also moving to a new setting and this whole new experience. So I think I learned a lot about myself both as just a therapist and and even just about myself, things that I never really had to think about before, and I kind of learned. So I thought that was pretty cool. And I wanted to maybe share just a couple of those things and then also see if you guys had, you know, similar experiences. I think for one, I I really thought I would enjoy the inpatient rehab the most. I, outpatient was going to be cool, and I was excited for that, but I thought inpatient rehab was where I was going to want to be and stay and just lean into that. Um, and that it was, I guess that also is something that kind of surprised me, but I realized that just the the longstanding relationships are so important to me. And so being able to see progress in my patients for over six months and we'd work on something and then I'd say, how, how was this weekend? Did you try that skill in your home environment? Um, and and like, how did it go for you? Or, you know, you had, you went to a party this weekend and we talked about some different things you could do to make that, you know, possible and, and, and kind of modify your routines that you had enough energy to go to the party or you could cast beforehand, you know, like whatever the skill was, it made that party possible. It was so rewarding just to hear them come back and say, yes, it went so well, or you're never going to believe what else happened that we didn't even think of. Um, and just partner with them in daily life and feel like we were really working in their, in their context. Um, even if we were meeting in the clinic, like we were really working on, you know, their occupations in context. And so I realized I loved that. And so now being able to be in a setting where we can have those longer standing relationships is something that I learned about myself and, and or something that I really want to do. And, and I learned that about myself through doing this process. And I loved inpatient rehab, but it, I just think long-term that's not necessarily the setting that I want to be in. Um, so that's, that's one thing I learned about myself. Um, and again, I think about the mentorship too, like what do I really need from a mentor? Um, before it had just kind of worked out, I didn't really need to think about that as much. Um, so I think that was really good. How about you guys? Is there anything you learned about yourselves through this process? I kind of already knew this about myself. I don't know. So as I mentioned before, I'm very type A and 
<laughs> some some of my mentors were not type A and I was freaking out. Mm-hmm. And yes. So I already knew that about myself and I felt like before I was very bad at adapting and figuring out a way to just get over it and meet in the middle. And so I learned how to be a lot better at that. Um which has helped me in other aspects of life because you have to get over it. <laughs> um <laughs> But I learned quickly how to figure it out because it made my life a lot more pleasurable and easy mm-hmm. and less stressful when I just figured it out very quickly, which I didn't think I was capable of doing. <laughs> that is that is impressive. I actually, once you said that, I that really resonated with me as well. Um, I think part of that actually goes back to what I was trying to get, get at with mentorship too is like, like you're saying – um, I'm very type A too. So I would say, let's meet at this time. I want to review these items. I want to do this thing, learn this thing. Here's what we're going to talk about. And we're meeting from this time to this time. And so some of my mentors, that was great. Uh, but usually, and of course we do need to be flexible in a clinical environment and I do get that. But sometimes it'd be like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot we were meeting today. Let's meet next week instead. <laughs> Meanwhile, yes. what I wanted to talk about, I was like, no, I want to talk about it today because I want to <laughs> apply it on Friday. But I had to internalize that and just be like, nope okay, that's fine. We'll meet next week. It's all good. Um, so what I was thinking, what I was kind of like, how I was responding, it was definitely, there's some distance there, but I was, I was definitely trying to be more of that in the, in the middle, like Samantha, you're describing. So that totally resonates with me. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, I mean, I feel like we're all type A, um, and so I feel like we're generally speaking, go getters, like we got to go, go, go. Um, So I feel like this year, I really took it as, okay, I need to get some more balance because I've been in school, you know, since I was five and I, because I didn't take breaks between undergrad and grad school. And so I feel like this year, you know, there, so for the LEND program, there were reading assignments and, you know, different projects and all these things. And then on top of that, Mm -hmm. for the fellowship, any clinicals that we had to do, Um, They provided optional resources that we could review. And so normally I'm the person who, you know, writes down, okay, for Tuesday, I have to read page 55 to 58. And before I go to this clinical, I have to review this resource so that I have all the right questions. And I Mm. feel like this year, not that I slacked off, but I definitely allowed myself to kind of step back and go, okay, you know what? It's okay if you didn't do the whole reading assignment, which is not typical to me, especially before the fellowship. It was like, if I had the, you know, I wrote out my whole rubric basically for myself for the whole semester um, mm-hmm. of like, these are, these are when assignments are due and these are when I have to have read these by and this project's due in two months, let's start now sort of thing. Um, whereas I felt like this year, while I was getting a lot more training and mentorship, I was also allowing myself some more grace with, yep. you know, you don't have to be on 110% all the time. Um, right. And it was nice too, because I don't know that that would have happened if I went straight into just clinical practice by myself. Sure. Um, so yeah, I feel like that was the biggest takeaway from like a self-care personal mm-hmm. experience for me. That's huge. The self-care piece of being in such an intense position because fellowships are very intense, right? Would you both agree? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So these are very intense and I think, yeah, that, that, health perspective, you know, really taking care of yourself. Um, it's so important. And actually this is, I should have said this as my answer for, for my own question about 
you know, what I learned about myself. But now that you've reminded me, um, <laughs> I would I would really say though that taking care of yourself is huge. And and I actually want to kind of transition too into this next question about, you know, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? And I think I'll kind of start with that because for me, I never struggled thankfully before this fellowship, I never struggled with feelings of like anxiety. I was always very confident, not in like an overconfident way, but you know, I would be able to stand in front of people and not get nervous to give a presentation. I felt confident in what I knew, confident in what I didn't know. And I was okay with that. And I was always growing to, you know, hopefully gain more onto what I was good at side, but, um, I was comfortable with that. And I felt like I maybe went in with expectations of myself and what I was supposed to do and what I was supposed to know and how I should do things that just weren't always true or maybe weren't necessary. Maybe I was holding myself to a different standard or too high a standard or, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I felt like during the fellowship, I really had to start learning what it felt like to feel maybe inadequate in a certain skill area. You know, I was trying to learn how to be a really good spinal cord injury therapist and a really good brain injury therapist and a really good stroke therapist and also get all these other new learning experience and just take in so much. And I felt like my output wasn't reflective of that. Like my actual therapeutic skills, especially at the beginning, I just felt like, oh, I could be doing better. I'm not doing as well as I know I can. And that caused some anxiety. And I'll be honest, that year of fellowship, it was so valuable. And I, like I said, I highly recommend it. We're doing this podcast just to give people more information because we think it's a good opportunity. But for me, um, I, you know, it's interesting. I had a lot of health problems pop up that year, um, like physical, physical illnesses, um, and I feel like it was because I didn't know how to handle that anxiety that I was putting, that I was kind of potentially creating a little bit for myself or that I was experiencing. And so if I could do it again, I would have much better like coping strategies. I would have much better awareness of myself and um, kind of what I needed to stay mentally healthy during that time because it was such a good experience. And I think I would have gained even more from it if I had that, that, those skills and that handle on it. So, um, for me, I think that that is huge. I also think Marissa, you were talking about, you know, okay, I've got to read these articles and look at these resources before I see this patient. You know, I didn't do that a whole lot because I felt like at the end of the day, sometimes my brain just needed to take a break. I was away from family I was in a new town trying to build relationships outside of work so that I wasn't alone in this new city, in this new state. So I felt like, oh man, maybe it's bad that I'm putting so much effort into making friends and doing things outside of work that I'm not spending as much time reading literature and um, and, and kind of doing work-related things. So I think for me, I'd, again, I'd, yeah, I'd kind of give myself a little bit more grace in that area. And I think I would um, just take better care of myself so that I could do even better work. But what about for you guys? What's um, what would you do differently if you if you could start over again, knowing what you know now? Um, I would have let go of the productivity perspective part, mm. um, and not been so focused on meeting that number. Because to be completely honest, pretty much no other fellow before me or after me has consistently met productivity. <laughs> um, yeah. And really they like administration was, I mean, obviously they're not thrilled about it, but they were like, this is just how it is. And the PT fellows and mm-hmm. um, residents were also the same way. Like it was not a super realistic expectation given the fact that they also wanted you to have so many outside experiences. 
Right. But if you tell me to hit a number, I'm going to hit it. So I probably would have done less of that. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good piece of advice. And I think that even applies to people um, not doing fellowships. <laughs> like, yes, right. there are productivity standards, but almost it's like the more you focus on that and the more that becomes your goal. Right. That's just not a healthy, you know, approach to work in general, I think. Right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So two things. One, I realized I didn't mention for us, um, what productivity standards there are. So we only have productivity standards on Wednesdays and Fridays because those are the days that we're treating in the TIP preschool program and um, on our own. Um, so I feel like for me, because those were the only two days that I had productivity standards and those mm-hmm. were the only two days that I was independently treating, um, it wasn't difficult to meet the standards for that because ours are, well, mine was 63% for those two days. So there was a little bit more flexibility and also because they were the standard caseload where I'm seeing the child Friday at two o'clock. It was pretty consistent. Um, But going back to what we would do differently, I feel like especially in the beginning, um, it was hard kind of transitioning from, okay, I kind of got used to being on my own and now I'm going back to being directly supervised by someone. And I feel like for me, that kind of provoked some anxiety of, okay, gosh, do I even know what I'm doing? Like there's this person who's been working for 20 years, who's specialized, um, like the, my developmental sensory competency trainer has been at Cincinnati Children's for 18, 19 years. Um, she's SIPT certified. She has her board certification in pediatrics. So I feel like for me, that was really intimidating to go in and it made it a lot harder on myself mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. and even physically. Um, because I was just trying so hard to keep up and um, kind of almost set my expectations for myself too high, I feel like, in that setting. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also kind of in the beginning too, anytime, you know, uh, the rheumatology OT would ask me, you know, do you want to jump in? It was automatically like this fear of, oh gosh, you know, she knows everything about rheumatology. Like, what if I say something wrong or what if I, um, you know, do something that makes absolutely zero sense in this scenario. Um, but I do feel like by being comfortable in those situations is where you grow. And so I feel like over the year, I've slowly gotten more comfortable with that. But I feel like if I could go back, especially in those first couple months that I would have gotten more out of that, if I just kind of let myself be comfortable with trying things and not worrying so much about, okay, this three o'clock kid, you know, we tried this last time, this didn't work. Let's pull out the specific toy and we're going to, you know, give him feedback this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if I could go back at, to the beginning and kind of tell myself to just relax, you know, you are an OT, even though you don't have as much experience as this person. Um mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to do anything crazy to hurt a child. So just try things and learn from them. And um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the mentorship is there for, for you to learn. So I feel like that was something that I had trouble reminding myself is you're here to learn. And even though these people know more than you do and have way more experience, like they're just there to teach you about whatever it is that they're working on. So, yeah. That's huge. To be honest, I think when you were talking about that, that made me, yeah, kind of remember those feelings of anxiety most mostly came up when I felt like I needed to perform for the mentor watching me who was taking notes on, which side note, I think that's something I realized I cannot have somebody taking notes while watching me do my job. Yeah. 
take mental notes and write it down later. Like I can't, I, or I need to work on that, which is probably the, the correct answer is that I need to work on that and being okay with seeing that they're writing stuff down and not knowing if it's positive or negative. Like, don't worry about it. You're doing your job. You're an OT. Um, and that's something I'm working on for sure uh, still. Um, but I think that anxiety came up when I felt like I was just being like judged by somebody else. And I don't think that was the mentor imposing judgment on me. I think that was me creating that that was what was happening. You know what I mean? Sort of telling myself the story that I was being judged. And if I do something that's not great, somebody's questioning, why is this girl an OT? Which sounds kind of crazy, but when you're in the moment, it feels very real. You know? yeah. Yeah. I think that's even just good advice for any OT who's new grad and maybe is being, you know, challenged in their work and just kind of knowing that it's okay if, if you're not doing everything perfectly. No one's sitting there, you know, writing notes to MBCOT saying you shouldn't be an OT. You, you know, you're not, you're not messing with badly. It's okay. Right. It's all a learning experience. So, yeah. And so on a very practical next steps note, if someone is applying for a fellowship program and let's say they get an interview, can we give them a few you know, pieces of advice, maybe some questions they might want to ask. Because I know for me, I just didn't even know what to ask because every program's so different. And I just tried to take in as much as I could, but I felt like my questions weren't as targeted as they could have been. So do we have any question recommendations for people who are going into a fellowship interview and like just don't know what to ask? <laughs> um, I would definitely ask to either see an example or be told an example of the format and the structure. Mm. Um, Just because I feel like that while less structured experiences are fine for some people, other people just like cannot thrive in that. And it's good to know up front what you're probably walking into so that you can determine if that is a good fit for you. So good. I think that's huge, especially since I think that's one of the largest points of variation between fellowship programs is the structure as we've seen today. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah, I think kind of going off of that, I would say clarifying the level of mentorship kind of like what you guys were saying. So I didn't before talking with you guys, I didn't realize that some it was more you have to independently seek out the mentorship as opposed to it's structured for you and on Tuesday at 9 you're going to be with this person. Mm-hmm. Um so kind of clarifying that to determine if that's something you're comfortable with is having to set up those own experiences or if you're okay with having them set up for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And then since productivity was something that we brought up, if that's something that's important for me, it wasn't that important going in. I figured we'd just figure it out as we go, but I know for some people that number is really important. So clarifying any productivity requirements. Um, That's great. But yeah, I don't know that I can think of any other specific ones. Yeah. I think the other one that came to mind for me, and I think it's just really reflective of my own experience, um, but what what knowledge or what experience is expected of a new fellow walking in um, and really being open and honest about what you do and do not have experience with? So I had very, very minimal experience with brain injury. And one of my interview questions was asking what I would do in a very specific case example of someone who has an acquired brain injury. So I answered the question, I'm sure, very poorly, and um, it still worked out. I got the job, but, but I'm sure I answered it poorly. But I think then that maybe should have clued me in to say, what do you expect of an incoming fellow? Because I have time to prepare. And if there's something I don't know or that I don't have the skills for, I'm happy to acquire those skills before I start. And I think I should have asked that. 
and I didn't. So I would say if you're, if you're, especially if you're new to that setting or with a population asking, you know, what assessments do you guys use? Because if, if it's an assessment that you've learned, but you're a little rusty on, that's something you can do ahead of time. You don't necessarily need mentorship to review um, an assessment that's you that you're kind of familiar with. Um, you know, like what assessments are you guys using, using most often? Um, are there any modalities that you highly recommend I at least, you know, read about before we get started that maybe I wouldn't have had exposure to in school? Um, kind of just the entry-level knowledge because I think it – almost like what Samantha was saying about the critical care setting – where there's so much base knowledge. Like you can take an online webinar about critical care um, lines and tubes to get an entry basic knowledge. You're definitely going to want mentorship, but at least when they come in and start talking about all these different lines, you can say, oh yeah, okay, I, I do remember learning about that, but tell me more. Um, and so, right. you, so, so I feel like, you know, finding out what is expected of you coming in could be so helpful just to propel you forward once you actually start. Yeah. I think too, um, talking about your, I just thought of this, um, yeah. example with the brain injury question, I feel like in an interview, because again, these fellowships are meant for specialized training and mentorship. So I don't feel like they expect you obviously coming in to already know it all. Otherwise you wouldn't be seeking out right. a fellowship. <laughs> and so I feel like in an interview, that's a really great opportunity for candidates to emphasize, you know, I really haven't had that much experience with this diagnosis. Um, but I am willing to learn, you know, I would, and kind of maybe even giving examples, like before seeing this patient, I would reach out to any, maybe if mm -hmm. there's like a specific TBI mentor or um, any sort of evidence-based articles that you could be researching, like really emphasizing I'm here to learn. And that's why mm -hmm. I want to do the fellowship, I think could really make people stand out as a candidate. Marissa, why did we not talk before my interview? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you got it anyways, so it worked out. <laughs> yeah, it, got, it worked out. It all worked out. Yeah, those are great questions um, to be asking. And so I think hopefully what this has shown people is just how different each fellowship is. And so asking a question, even prefacing it by saying, my understanding is that every fellowship structures things differently. So in, at this location, how do you handle X, right, or Y, or whatever? Um, and it's I just want to reinforce it's probably not a dumb question, and it's probably not an obvious question because every site is going to have a different answer. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing that you should know about fellowships before, you know, you don't need to like, there's no sense like secret code where everybody's the same on this. I mean, it's very much okay to say, hey, I don't understand how this fellowship program handles this. Um, can you give me some more details? So I want to give people the freedom to ask those questions that they might otherwise um, be afraid not to, you know, to ask. Great. So as we start to wrap up here, um, you know, I love to ask what book recommendations people have. I love to read, and I know there's lots of others in our OT community that love to read. So um, what do you have for us? Yeah, so I have two. So one of them, at the beginning of our LEND program, we were assigned different books, and we kind of had like a book club um, with everyone. So the one that I was assigned was called Good Kings, Bad Kings. And it's a fictional story about teenagers who are living in an institution and they all have various disabilities. Um, so for me, one, it's fictional. So it's a little bit of a lighter read, I feel like. Um, so that was nice to have that over the summer. But also, um, I feel like at least in OT, we work more with the younger kids. And I feel like one of the things that I've kind of found through this fellowship is that I do kind of have a passion for addressing those transition age kids, especially those mm -hmm. teenagers who are, you know, going through everything else. 
So for me, it was good to get that perspective of listening to teenagers advocating for themselves through this book um, and kind of getting the perspective of, you know, their people too. And I feel like not that, not that we forget that, but I do feel like sometimes it's easy um, because we are, you know, the helpers Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, better um, gain independence for these kids, but that, you know, in the end, they all have their own personalities, they all have their own opinions, um, and that we need to be respectful of those and also keep those into consideration whenever we're treating. Um, and then the second book that I've read while being here is called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. So mm-hmm. since the TIP program is heavily focused on kids who have been through abuse and neglect, um, mm-hmm. this book is written by um, a psychiatrist who has treated a lot of kids um, who have experienced trauma. So I will give the disclaimer that it is kind of a tougher read because he does detail some of the abuse and neglect that mm-hmm. kids that he's treated have experienced. But then he kind of goes and breaks down um, the neuroscience behind it and kind of talks about, oh. okay, this is why it makes sense that they would be demonstrating this behavior. So for me personally, it was really helpful when I was treating in tip because, you know, I would have a really rough day where this one kid, you know, tried to throw the scissors at me and they're like knocking all the tables over it and climbing on the bookshelves. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, if you would just sit down in your green chair and do our work (laughs) through this day. Uh, So I feel like, I mean, I already knew that they had experienced various things, but I feel like this book really helped give Mm. a framework of kind of the why behind the behavior and how, we can better support um, kids who have experienced trauma. So those are my That's so good. Yeah, I think um, I've heard a lot about it recently too, but just this idea that we see behaviors and sometimes we can forget that behaviors are not just isolated things, that there's a story and they're trying to tell us something through those behaviors. And I love that that book um, gives some good perspectives on that. Two great reads that I have not heard of. So I'm very excited to read those. Yeah, they're good. Thank you. How about you, Samantha? Um, so my first one is not super exciting. It's Occupational Therapy and Acute Care, which is a big textbook, but okay. it's great and super helpful. Um, I did also read three books during my fellowship that I kind of just stumbled upon during my other research um, that were great. So the first one was When Breath Becomes Air. Yes. <laughs> and I love it so much. Um, I really love books that are like accounts of people who have experienced illness and mm-hmm. how it went. Um, so that one's really good. It's about a physician who gets lung cancer. And then Brain on Fire is another good one. Yep. Um, that one is about someone who gets lots of differing diagnoses that are not correct. And it kind of shows her experience of how everybody is so confused about what is wrong with her. And that's also on Netflix. Um, And then the last one is my stroke of insight, which is that one was probably the most interesting to me because it is written by a physician who has a stroke. And then she describes how things like how she was perceiving things. So um, she had aphasia and she said that when people would come talk to her, it sounded like dogs were barking. And so it was very interesting to remind you, like, kind of like the behavior thing. So you're in a room with a patient, you're like, I don't understand why I can't communicate with you. 
because it's very hard to tease out things, especially from neurological injuries. Like, mm-hmm. are you just ignoring me or do you not understand? So it's, it right. can be very hard to figure out how to best communicate. Um, so those books that are accounts of people experiencing illness are very helpful for me to remind myself of like, okay, there's probably a reason for this. And it helps me kind of go through the steps of figuring out other ways to make it work. So good. So good. It's funny. The, um, when breath becomes air, I think you're like the fourth guest to mention that book. Um, so it's, it, it feel like that's really impacting people. Everyone's loving it. I love that book. And I think Bring on Fire, one other guest mentioned. So I think those are really good recommendations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So today we uncorked the hot topic of fellowship programs and we shared multiple perspectives on what those can look like. Um, and I hope this conversation was very helpful to folks who are, who are interested in fellowships and this being a potential next career step. And we also uncorked three different drinks. So I'd love a quick review on what you thought about what you were drinking today. Yeah. So the Ryan Guys Little Bubs is one of my go-to drinks since being here. Because again, since I'm from Texas, I had never heard of Ryan Geist. Um, But I really like it that it's a sparkling rosé and that it's really light and fruity. Um, And sometimes they even put it with, you know, orange juice and make kind of like a little mimosa, like a rosé mimosa. good. Yeah, I love it. I love that versatile. How about you, Samantha? Um, yeah, this is actually one of my favorite kinds of wine. So it was great as always. <laughs> Good. Well, and I was drinking a Cabernet Sauvignon, which is but I drink so many episodes. So I'm really sorry, listeners, if this is getting boring and it's my go-to. <laughs> but I, I always try to make the wine in some way relate to the topic. So, you know, that we're talking about on the episode. So I chose The Candidate. It's a uh, 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon from South Australia. And I chose it, first of all, because of the name, The Candidate. And I'm really hoping this episode helps people see not only if they would be a good candidate for a fellowship program, but really if a fellowship is a good candidate for them as a next step in their career. And, you know, if this is a candidate they should be considering um, as they move forward, I think that it's not necessarily for everyone, but I do think it's a really good option to know about. And so if, if hearing this episode is really kind of pulling at people's interest, you know, I think it's worth pursuing that train of thought to see if this could be a good candidate for you. And my review of the wine. So the first thing I said when I took a sip of this was, oh, that's spicy, which is so interesting because I don't typically say that about wine, but there's a lot of strong flavors in here. It's very bold. It's dry and lots of different spices. And I'm not... Um, skilled enough to identify what all those different spices are, but there was, it was a very just bold kind of overwhelming, like, wow, there's a lot of spice to that, which is really interesting. Um, I'd say it's definitely more on the acidic side, which I'm not a huge fan of, but again, I think it was so unique and so many interesting flavors that it, it's still kind of, um, you know, I would still recommend it. A lot of dark fruit, which I tend to really like. I would say though, this is not, you know, I know I, I, kind of did this, but you know, this is not the kind of wine I think I would just sit down with a glass of wine to kind of unwind at the end of the day. I think this is more so one you have when you're having like a dart, like a red meat and like a really hearty meal. I think it would complement that very well. Um, but I wouldn't say it's like a go-to just for a glass of wine, um, outside of a meal. So anyway, that's my review of the candidate. So if you want to check out these wines, I'll have it in the show notes. You can, um, see the name and information of them. 
again, thank you guys so much. If people have more questions, which I'm sure they will, about fellowships or maybe even your specific programs, how can people contact you? Um, they can contact me via email if they would like. Um, it's just my name, Samantha.hoyle at duke.edu. So pretty easy to remember. Um, that is the easiest way to get in touch with me. Yeah, I was going to say either email or LinkedIn. I know I actually had someone last week, or I guess it was this week, message me about fellowships, which I feel like is an appropriate timing, um, asking kind of what my experience was and whether or not I'd recommend them. And it kind of really ties into the podcast today about everyone's experience is different and every program is different. So it's really, I can give my experience, but that's all I can give. Um, So it's been so great talking with you guys, Marissa and Samantha, about your fellowship experiences. Um, Of course, I only had my own experience, and so it's been so cool to hear how our programs overlapped and really um, create the foundation of what an AOTA fellowship is supposed to be, and then also how each site and each of us kind of was able to customize the experience to really match our professional goals and really just help us grow as OTs in the areas in which we really want to grow. So I really hope this episode is helpful for people who are considering a fellowship program. I loved hearing about the differences between my fellowship experience and Marissa's and Samantha's experiences. My year as a fellow has changed my OT clinical and research practices and I'm very grateful for the experience. So if you're interested in learning more about fellowships or applying, check out the show notes and reach out to any of us with other specific questions. We're happy to share. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It's always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers. Cheers.